Good morning. It's great to see you all. And the only thing I need to mention before we start is that we are meeting again at 6 p.m. this evening. It will be a prayer service. Uh, we've had these uh, quite a few times before, an opportunity to pray for a lot of different things and to pray in different ways as well. So I hope that you can join us uh, for that time this evening. And that's all I need to give you in terms of information. So let's begin our time of worship with prayer. Lord God, we thank you that we can come to you this morning as our Father. We can come confident and assured of your love, not because of our achievement, but because of your far-reaching, rescuing mercy. Because of your mercy, we have a firm place to stand. And we can face the future with confidence. Because we know the future doesn't depend on our great success. It doesn't depend on our performance. If that was the case, we would be eaten up with concern and fear. But as your people, we face the future without fear. Because we know you are the wise one. You are the strong one, and our lives are safe in your hands. Some of us are facing significant stresses and uncertainties at the moment. And in the midst of that, it's easy for us to forget these truths. So this morning, will you remind us and reassure us, show us again that you are the one we can trust because you are our Savior and our loving Father. Amen. We're going to begin with a song of God's love and deliverance. When I was lost. my life. 
to have a Bible reading that expresses these truths we've just been hearing about. It's Psalm 27, if you have a Bible with you. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me, the double me, it is my enemies and my foes, who stumble and fall. To an army beside me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this one I only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of the trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high up a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Do my father and my mother forsake me. The Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because my oppressors. Do not hide me over the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spending malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the glory of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. That psalm gives us a beautiful promise. 
Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And the New Testament tells us that closeness with God comes through knowing Jesus Christ. In him, we experience God's perfect love. And the musicians are going to lead us in a song which describes that perfect love of God.
this point, the Sunday school are going to be moving next door. Who wants to be someone? Don't we all? Don't we all want to be noticed and respected and remembered? We want to be appreciated in some way. None of us want to die having never made a mark or been recognized. And while we're alive, we want to know that we count. That our life matters, if not to many people, at least to somebody. Maybe you feel that strongly this morning. As I said, I think we all feel that to some degree. It's part of being human. That desire to count and to matter is stitched into our souls as human beings. And this morning, as we turn to the book of Judges, we're going to see how that human desire to be someone can lead us either to deep sorrow or to deep peace. It can lead us to either destroy those around us or bless those around us. We're going to look this morning at Judges chapter 11. And before we read this chapter, we need a little bit of context because the end of chapter 10 left us with a cliffhanger. Chapter 10 told us a people called the Ammonites have set about shattering and crushing Israel. And the chapter ended with the Ammonite and Israelite armies camped facing each other in a region called Gilead. Gilead is Israelite territory at this point. It was the furthest east their territory went. And we discovered even though the Israelites are camped ready for battle, they have no one to lead them. And chapter 10 ended like this. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. In other words, we're looking for a volunteer, somebody, anybody, please. And notice what they're offering. That person will be their head, meaning he will be the president, the chief, the top man. That detail will be important in what comes next. And now as chapter 11 begins, before we come back to the Israelite army, we're given a flashback. So we'll read chapter 11. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother 
was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me? And drive me from my father's house. Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his troops and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now, Since the Lord, the God of Israel, had driven the Ammonites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aror, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. 
Let the Lord, the judge, decide this dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Aror to the vicinity of Manith, as far as Abel Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of tambourines. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you've brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. This is God's word. And of course... What gets our attention here is the ugly, horrible end to the story. But we will never understand how that ugly horror came about unless we look carefully at the beginning and the middle of the story. So let's put our questions about the end on hold for now. And let's look how Jephthah is introduced to us. We're told he is a victim of injustice. Verse 1 says he's a mighty warrior. So he's a very capable man, as we'll see. But he is also a man who carries a deep, deep hurt. He has been sinned against blatantly and inexcusably. These opening verses show us that clearly. After telling us he's a mighty warrior, verse 1 also tells us his mother was a prostitute. Now clearly that is not Jephthah's fault in any way. But he's treated as if it is his fault in some way. It seems that Jephthah was Gilead's firstborn son, which would have made him the heir. 
But Gilead, who also happens to be from Gilead, which can be confusing, Gilead also had other sons with his wife. And verse 2 says, when those other sons were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So the legitimate sons of Gilead, they gang up on Jephthah, the illegitimate son, and they disinherit him. In fact, it seems like they tried to kill him because he ends up fleeing from them. And we'll learn a bit later, the elders of Gilead, that's the leading citizens, they back up Jephthah's brothers. His brothers are supported in this move to deprive Jephthah of his inheritance and to deprive him even of a place among his people. And so through no fault of his own, Jephthah finds himself living essentially as a bandit, driven away from home and surviving on his wits and his fighting skills. That's Jephthah's backstory. It leaves us in no doubt he's been a victim of injustice. His own people have treated him evilly. So we can understand why when we actually hear from Jephthah, we find a man who is, has a burning desire to succeed in his life. Not only to survive, but to be respected. To become somebody significant. And in the following verses, he is presented with a big opportunity. Verses 1 to 3 have filled in the necessary background details. And then verse 4 brings us back into the present. To the Ammonites who are shattering and crushing Israel. We know the Israelites are leaderless. And apparently they've had no takers for the offer they made at the end of chapter 10. Nobody has responded to the offer of the headship of those who live in Gilead. Nobody has come forward, and by now things are beginning to get desperate. You can imagine the elders sitting around the table trying to come up with a way forward. Until finally one of them says, well, there is Jephthah. I know we've tried to avoid bringing up his name, but what other choice do we have? We all know what we think of him. We know what we did to him. But we also know he's a born leader. People gather around him. And he's a mighty warrior. He is the only one who can do it. And so, verse 5 says, The elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander. So we can fight the Ammonites. Notice there what they offer him and what they don't offer him. Back in chapter 10, verse 18, the offer was, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be our head, our president. But that is not what they offer Jephthah. The offer to him is, be our commander. They're offering him a much lesser role command of the army in the battle, but not the presidency. 
After all, he is an outcast. His mother was a prostitute. You can see how they're still prejudiced against him. They think a man like him should be flattered by this kind of an offer. He should jump at it. But it turns out Jephthah is not just a fighter, he's also a smart negotiator. Verse 7. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Jephthah knows the elders are desperate and so he holds out for a better offer than just commander of the army. And knowing themselves how badly they need him, the elders do up their offer. He can be head over them, they say. But notice carefully what the deal is. If he wins the battle, he gets to be head. It all hinges on that. So yes, both sides make solemn promises and Jephthah gets sworn in. That's what it means in verse 11 when it says he repeated all his words before the Lord. It's an oath of office. But all of that is just provisional. If he doesn't win the battle, he will not be head. He'll just be an outcast again. So the stakes are high. This is a big, big opportunity. If Jephthah leads the army to victory, he gets to be somebody. He can claim the respect that has always been denied to him. This outcast can earn a high position for himself. But first he has to win. And Jephthah knows his army probably isn't up to it. So instead of risking a battle, he first decides to try and negotiate with the Ammonites. It's already worked for him with the elders of Gilead. Maybe he can overcome the Ammonites the same way. So, verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now, give it back peaceably. It'll be helpful for us to see what land they're talking about here. It's this block of land here. At this point in time, it's occupied by the Israelite tribes of Reuben and Gad. And it borders the land of the Ammonites. The king of the Ammonites says, Look, generations ago, when your ancestors came up out of Egypt, they came up here and they took this land away from me. No, I just want it back. 
Well, in verses 14 to 25, we get Jephthah's reply. And what he says is, actually, you're wrong. This land was never yours to begin with. My ancestors took it from the Amorites. But you're the Ammonites. Not the same thing. I can see how you might get confused if your spelling's not great. But the fact is, Jephthah says, you have no historical claim to this land. And anyway, our God gave it to us, so we're keeping it. And then look how Jephthah ends his message down in verse 26. For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aror, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arda. Why didn't you retake them during that time? In other words, the reason you did nothing about this for 300 years is because you have no claim on this land. And your people have always known that. Then verse 27, I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The previous parts of the speech have shown that Jephthah is an incredibly sharp guy. Not only does he know his history very well, he can make his case very well. But here at the very end, we learn something else about him. He knows who's in charge of the world. He knows the Lord, the God of Israel, is unrivaled as the sovereign Lord of all. He knows the Lord has the final say. Whatever debates and disputes go on on this earth, whatever battles are fought, the outcome is in the Lord's hand. And if you ever happen to be reading Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, and you find Jephthah's name there in that chapter, described as a man of faith, this is why. He knows the Lord reigns over all. And Jephthah stakes all his hope on the Lord, giving him victory in this situation. Whatever else Jephthah gets wrong... He gets this right. But, verse 28 says, the king of Ammon paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. So the negotiation has failed. And remember what that means. Jephthah's chance to be someone is now hanging by a very thin thread. The pressure is cranking up. If he loses this, he's back to being a bandit in the hills. And as he feels that pressure, we see Jephthah resorting to desperate measures. Verse 29 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. The terrible tragedy here is that the Lord is with Jephthah, and Jephthah doesn't know it. 
We heard last week how fed up God was with the Israelites. He was sick to death of their fake repentance. But here, in his love, it's almost as if he cannot resist stepping in to help again. He pours his spirit on Jephthah to equip him for the task. And so as Jephthah and his army advance against the Ammonites, we know they're going to win. We want to shout to Jephthah, don't do the next bit. Forget about making that stupid vow. Just fight. The Lord is with you. You don't need to do anything else. But we can't shout to Jephthah. And he does do the next bit. In verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Just to clear up one question that we might have here. Did Jephthah intend to make a human sacrifice? The answer is almost certainly yes, he did. One writer says, in the ancient world, animals did not go out to meet returning conquerors. When Jephthah makes this vow, he is not thinking of his poodle or his parrot. He intends a human sacrifice. So we know what he intends. The next question is, why does he make this terrible vow? He makes it because he desperately, desperately wants to be somebody. And he knows the Lord is in control. And he desperately, desperately wants the Lord to give him the victory. So he makes this horrific vow to make sure, to twist the Lord's arm. That's one reason Jephthah does this. His personal motivation to succeed. But there is another reason he makes this vow. He does it because he barely knows the Lord. Yes, he's a religious man. To a certain degree, we could even call him a man of faith, because he knows the Lord is high over all. He knows the Lord is in charge. We've seen that. But Jephthah doesn't know the character and the ways of the Lord. And he doesn't know this about the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord provides his own sacrifices. Jephthah has an understanding of God that has been shaped by the world around him, the world of Canaan with its idol worship. And so Jephthah thinks God can be bribed because that's what you tried to do with idols. He thinks the Lord can be bargained with. Just like Jephthah had bargained with the elders of Gilead. But long, long before this, God had showed the truth about himself. 
Long ago, he told a man called Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and climb Mount Moriah and there sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. That was the command. But as Abraham went to obey, God stopped him. He shouted to Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. And as Abraham looked up, he saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. The message was, Abraham didn't have to provide the sacrifice. God provided it. Abraham's descendants didn't have to be sacrificed. They could live because God would provide another sacrifice. Abraham even called that place, the Lord will provide. He got the message. And then later in Israel's history, after the exodus from Egypt, God brought the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And there he gave them the law of sacrifice. That law, again, made it clear the Israelites were not to sacrifice their children. That was what the other nations did. The Israelites were to bring animal sacrifices. Just as God provided a ram for Abraham, so in the law he provided lambs and bulls as the sacrifices for his people. Israel's God is the God who provides the sacrifice. And ultimately, as we read on in Scripture, we find out that God gave himself as the sacrifice. God the Son climbed another hill, and on that hill he died on a cross so human beings can be forgiven, and not only forgiven, but brought close to God as sons and daughters. point is, it's by trusting in God's work that you and I can be somebody. We do not achieve significance by negotiating with him or trying to bribe him with some extreme effort of our own. You and I get to be privileged sons and daughters in God's family through God's grace to us. We don't have to scramble and finagle our own way to significance. No matter how little other people might value us, we are significant to God because he made us. And we can experience his love and acceptance as we come to him his way. So if you've been rejected by everybody else, if you feel unnoticed by everybody else, come to God. He already knows you. And you don't have to bring your own offering or achievement to try and seal the deal with him. Just trust in the sacrifice he has provided. Jephthah was rejected by his family. He was rejected by his people. 
and he scrambled and he sweated to overcome that, to be somebody. And the sad part is, he thought God was just like his family and just like his people. He thought God was a reluctant God who had to be won over with a terrible sacrifice. So Jephthah made his vow, and Jephthah wasn't the only one to suffer terrible consequences from that vow. In the final verses of this passage, we see success swallowed up by sorrow. Verses 32 and 33 describe Jephthah's great success. Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Manith, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. This is not describing a one-off battle. This is a series of victories over quite a wide area. It seems the Ammonites have built a line of forts along the border to oppress Israel. Jephthah works his way along the forts and destroys all of them. And that victory, we're told, subdues Ammon. It's a victory given by the Lord. And as we know, it was a victory the Lord had already decided to give before Jephthah made his vow. So now Jephthah has what he wanted. He won the battle. Now he is head over Gilead. He's the big chief. That was the deal he made with the elders of Gilead. He scrambled and he bargained to get there, but now finally he is somebody. And yet his success is about to be swallowed up by sorrow. Not only for him, but for his family too. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines. She's joyful. She's coming to celebrate her father's victory and his safe return. Her dad is back. Then the writer tells us, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Is that true? Did Jephthah have to keep his vow? Absolutely not. God's law forbade human sacrifice. As we've seen, God provides his own sacrifice. God certainly does not require Jephthah to do this. But Jephthah still thinks God is like a human being. That he has to be bribed and bargained with. So he keeps his end of the bargain he's made. He sacrifices his daughter. And there, there can be no doubt he actually did do that. Back in verse 31, Jephthah vowed he would sacrifice the first thing out of his house as a burnt offering. 
And verse 39 says, he did to his daughter as he had vowed. Here's the horrible irony in this situation. Jephthah fought to be somebody. He fought to overcome the wrongs that had been done to him and find security and prosperity in his life. But in the end, his own desperate struggle to raise himself up ends up destroying him and his family. Maybe outwardly, he has more than he started with at this point. He's the big boss man now. But at what cost? His only child is dead. And trying to overcome his own insecurity, he has sacrificed his family. And that is what always happens when we try to achieve success and security for ourselves. I know none of us has sacrificed our family as a burnt offering. But can you see, when we decide it's up to us to make ourselves somebody, it's those around us who will pay the price. When we commit to serving ourselves, we are not going to serve others. We'll end up using them so we can get bigger and better. We might not turn those around us into burnt sacrifices, but they will still end up losing out so we can move ahead. And yet the Bible wants us to see there's a better way than that. And we find that better way when we realize it is not up to us to scramble for recognition and security. There is a Father in heaven who recognizes us already. He knew us even while we were in the womb. And he's not waiting for us to make some terrible bargain with him so we can be accepted and loved. God has made the way himself. He did the terrible work to pay for our forgiveness. So we can be brought near. So we can live secure in his perfect love. We all want to be somebody. That desire to count and to matter is stitched into our souls. And that desire is fulfilled through relationship with God. True confidence is not self-confidence. True confidence is knowing we are loved and treasured by God. That Jesus, the Lamb of God, gave himself as a sacrifice. So we could find our identity as children of God. Even as Christians... We can be slow to grasp this. If you're still fighting to make yourself someone, give it up. 
you'll never truly succeed. Not in any lasting way. And in the process of trying, you will bring sorrow on yourself and others. Come find your true significance in relationship with God through Jesus. That's true acceptance. That's true security. And your life will be a blessing to those around you. Our last song puts into words this joy of being known and loved by God. It's a new song, and it's a song worth learning. It's called, Who You Say I Am.
In Christ, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen.